0: Blog Talk Radio
1: From the far reaches of the known universe, we are
0: proud to present Brother Harold Mohammed,
1: soldier, scientist, scholar. Blog Talk Radio's finest. Not-So-Mad Science on Black Hole Radio. And welcome to tonight's edition of Not-So-Mad Science here on the Black Hole Radio Network. Once again and as always, coming to you live from the city of Detroit, Motown. Just because Barry Gordy took Motown to L.A. does not mean Detroit has lost its soul. I'm your host, for the Harold Muhammad. Last week, which I would have to say is probably the worst show that I've ever produced. It started out great. Some things came up. I tried to include Ariana Grande into the musical fair of the program, which to my displeasure was an egregious waste of your time, my time, and the ears of everyone that listens to Not So Mad Science. With that said, I offer my humble and sincere felt ap- pro- apologies For that atrocious intrusion on your spirits. Now, getting back to where we were supposed to be heading last week, I want to continue with the psychology of war, who the warmonger really is, and the trauma caused by chronic exposure to trauma along with some devastating COVID updates. To that end, let's jump right into it. We identified that chronic trauma changes people. It does things to you. The trauma of being in a wartime environment as with the conflict with Russia right now. The fear of more wasted young Black American or American souls going off to a war that benefit them not. The overwhelming outreach of care being given to the people who are involved in that wartime environment when that same level of care and concern is not offered right here at home. War and the trauma of war is not limited to those who are involved in the conflict, but those who suffer as a result of the conflict and its ancillary connections. What we did not get to last week is that experiencing traumatic events can change the trajectory, not only just your life, but the lives of those associated with you, in addition to causing physical, emotional, and psychological pain, traumatic stress affects the way that you handle your relationships, manage your day-to-day challenges, and the way you think about life. And this has led many in the world of psychological advances of science to wonder if traumatic stress changes the brain and its related structure. As complex as the brain is, one of the primary functions that the brain provides is to keep us safe. As we live life, our brain converts experiences into a coalesced memory. These memories are ordered like in a file cabinet. So we can prioritize activities that yield good results and avoid experiences that have negative consequences. When we experience trauma, our brain begins to work overtime to keep itself safe. Now, I'm using some research. That is provided by Stone Ridge. Just so that we can make sure that we offer thanks to those who provide the documented research that I draw on. The brain, as it begins to rely on negative blueprints of the past. keeps warning us of present danger long after the traumatic event or experience ends. This reaction changes the way the brain functions, sort of like reprogramming and reformatting it, because the brain is simply nothing but a biological computer with electrical synapses sending signals from one place to another to create or direct an effect as a result of a cause. These pathways can be altered. So according to Dr. Paul McLean, who is a noted neuroscientist, he says the brain can be divided into the three parts, the reptilian, mammalian and neo-mammalian brain. This triune brain model that he puts forward believes that each part of the brain has a specific function. He indicates that the reptilian brain houses our survival instincts and manages the autonomic body processes such as heart rate, breathing, hunger, and thirst. The mammalian brain helps us process emotions like joy and fear and regulates our individual attachment styles is the terminology he uses. The neomammalian brain is responsible for the sensory processing, learning, memory, decision-making, and complex problem-solving. When we experience trauma, the brain shuts down all non-essential systems and activates the pathways or the sympathetic nervous system and the mammalian brain to help us survive the trauma. The brain releases stress hormones and activates the flight or fight response passes the what is referred to as the parasympathetic nervous system reactivates and all three parts of the brain start functioning again typically research has shown that the traumatic stress can interfere with this process trapping the brain in its survival mode Trauma. Now we're looking at the long term concept of these programs, the psychology of war, the impact of these this war, whether actual, physical or rumored of has an impact resulting in trauma. Traumatic stress then changes the brain's delicate chemical balance and structure. These effects which can impact the way we function can be minor or severe depending upon the type of traumatic stress we're dealing with. Some people, for example, develop post-traumatic stress disorder, known as PTSD a terminology that became prevalent amongst Vietnam veterans. While others live with a heightened sense of anxiety, act impulsively, and have difficulty managing their emotions. All of these changes are symptoms that occur because of the way traumatic stress affects the brain trauma. The amygdala is an almond-shaped structure that helps us process emotions. The amygdala also helps regulate how we respond to fear and create emotional memories. Traumatic stress overactivates the amygdala. When this happens, our fear response becomes more intense. This means that memories of traumatic events can become nightmares and flashbacks. This can also mean that emotion-driven thoughts become so intrusive that they can prevent us from being able to sleep, to relax, to settle down, to become calm. An overactive amygdala also means our brains can have difficulty realizing the difference between a threat then and a threat now. This means that when we're reminded of a traumatic or a trauma event or experience, the amygdala responds the exact same way it would if we were experiencing the trauma for the very first time. This causes us to be on high alert all the time and can make us feel like we're constantly on edge. The results of an overactive amygdala can look different for each of us, but untreated traumatic stress almost always causes us to exhibit more fear of stressors than others. According to Stone Ridge, we can add these five things to that list. Chronic stress is the result of an overactive amygdala. Heightened fear. Increased irritation. An inability to calm down. Insomnia. Traumatic stress also affects the the hippocampus, the part of the brain which is responsible for storing and retrieving memories and differentiating between past and present experiences. Studies have shown that experiencing trauma and living with high levels of stress can increase, excuse me, can decrease the volume of the hippocampus. This can make it hard for us to distinguish between the past and the present. Because of this, even environments that remind us of traumatic experiences can cause fear, stress, and panic. Instead of the brain being able to easily create and store new memories, traumatic stress can keep old traumatic memories at the forefront of our brain, causing us to live in a constant state of hypervigilance and intense emotional activity. The prefrontal cortex of our brain affords us our ability to reason well and regulate and interpret emotions, control impulses, and solve complex problems. Scientific data shows that traumatic stress then can diminish functionality in the prefrontal cortex. This does negatively impact our ability to learn new information, to manage our emotions well, and solve problems. So in other words, dear family, traumatic stress makes the logical thinking difficult, which in turn can make us feel incapable of controlling our fears and our own thoughts. So how do these brain changes affect our day-to-day lives? Well, living with Constant traumatic stress changes the brain so much that daily life feels like it's a challenge. High levels of stress hormones with an over- overactive amygdala, a shrunken hippocampus, and less Actor prefrontal cortex can cause anxiety, insomnia, irritability, flashback, nightmares, panic attack, memory issues, poor concentration, trouble making decisions, and difficulty learning new things. All of these things then become symptoms of other psychological issues. symptoms of other psychological issues which then affect how we see ourselves in the world. Someone's always after me, you're always on the alert. Give a name for that psychological condition. You become a danger to yourself and you become a danger to other people around you because you're overly sensitive. There's a name for that psychological condition. You become, begin to suffer a condition called catatonia, and you become catatonic, where you just freeze in time. Dramatic stress also leads to fatigue. When the brain uses a good amount of energy trying to protect us, or protect itself from a perceived threat, we can feel emotionally, physically, and mentally depleted. Feeling this way can make daily responsibilities and self-care activities feel more like a chore than a standard operating procedure activity. Living with a brain that's always on the alert can also make relationships challenging. When we constantly feel threatened, paranoid, or afraid, we may not accurately pick up on how others feel and think. This leads to communication problems that put a strain on some of our more or most important relationships. But there's hope. There's a way out. Brain focused treatment programs can exist, can and do exist that can help heal the mind. But you have to be willing to present yourself to treatment. You know, I am a personal advocate of some of the processes made available through the technology called or offered by the people in the Church of Scientology called auditing. That allows you to go into your own self and self-examine with not so much a guide, but a helping hand to help you walk through your own personal mind field. I am a personal advocate of... Why are you doing that here? What are you doing? of those things that allow a person through a going into an, an institution of mental health that provides you the environment of safety and through a process of counseling not so much medication but counseling help you find you and deal with those things that are the source of your trauma and work these things out. Removing a person from an environment of stress.
0: No
1: fearful and scary to the person who has been living in a traumatic stress environment and they're highly reactive and they're constantly burdened with something or incredibly anxious and impulsive or irrational at times. Removing them from that environment lets them see that you don't have to live this way all the time and that these things can be managed.
0: (laughs) Now,
1: that being said, I want us to also look at the effects that COVID has placed on the brain because you don't generally hear about the traumatic effect of COVID on the brain. So let's take a look at that. According to the New York Times, brain scans of people before and after being infected showed a loss of gray matter and tissue damage uh, mostly in the areas related to smell and people who had COVID and those who did not. Now, you would say, how does The inability to smell cause trauma. Many, the quality of the foods that you eat has as much to do with the smell of that food and the idea of savoriness that comes with that sense of smell As much as the taste. When these two things. Are in congruency. Your food. Elicits a level. Of joy and happiness. So. Since it can be identified. That COVID-19. According to the research. Documented by. And Bellic, COVID-19 causes greater loss of gray matter and tissue damage in the brain than naturally occurred, that occurs in people who have not been affected by the virus. In a study that was published some weeks ago in early March, In the journal Nature, it is believed to be the first time involving people who underwent brain scans both before they contracted COVID and the months after. Neurological experts who were not involved in the research said it was vulnerable and unique. But they cautioned that the implications of the changes were unclear and did not necessarily want to suggest that people might have lasting damage or that the changes may be profoundly affecting their thinking, their memory, or other functions. We can't assume that it's not. And I'll share with you why we can't assume that it's not with some other information that I have been able to come across with respect to COVID and the documentation and details that need to be released. The study involved people between the ages of 51 to 81. They found shrinkage and tissue damage, primarily in brain areas related to the sense of smell. Some of those areas are also involved in other brain functions. To me, that's pretty convincing evidence that something changes in the brain. If this overall group of people with COVID according to the evidence provided by Dr. Serena Spudich, who is the Chief Neurological Infections and Global Neurology. Let me get her title correctly. Dr. Serena Spudich, Chief of Neurological Infections and Global Neurology at the Yale School of Medicine. According to her, this is pretty convincing evidence that something in the brain is wrong. She was not involved in the study, but she looked at the data, and that's her reaction. But she did caution that to make a conclusive conclusion that this has some long-term clinical implications for the patient. She said, I think it is a stretch. We don't want to scare the public and have them think, oh, this is proof that everyone's going to have brain damage and not be able to function. Well, there is evidence of brain damage. Let's not patty cake around it. There is brain damage as a result of COVID. And not addressing it properly, properly medically enhances the degree of brain damage particularly when you're depending upon a vaccine that has a myriad of negative effects on the human body. A study involving 785 participants in the United Kingdom's Biobank, which is a repository of medical and other data from about half a million people in Britain, the participants each underwent two brain scans roughly three years apart, plus some basic cognitive testing in between their two scans. 401 participants tested positive for the coronavirus. All got infected between March 2020 and April 2021. The other 384 participants formed a control group because they had not been infected with the coronavirus and had similar characteristics to the to the infected and in, the infected patients in areas like age sex medical history and socioeconomic status with normal aging people lose a tiny fraction of gray matter each year that's the standard human process For example, in regions related to memory, the typical annual loss is between 0.2% and 0.3%, according to what researchers say. But COVID patients in the study who underwent their second brain scan an average of four and a half months after their infection lost more than non-infected participants experiencing between 0.2% and 2% additional gray matter lost in different brain regions over the three years between scans. They lost also lost more overall brain volume and showed more tissue damage in certain areas. Dr. Spuddage says, after reviewing the data, she said, I find it surprising in the sense of how much more was lost and how generalized it is. Dr. Spudich have studied the neurological effects of COVID, she added, I would not have expected to see such a huge difference, such quite so much percentage in change. The effects may be particularly notable. Because the study involved mostly people who, like the majority of COVID patients in the general population, were mildly affected by their initial COVID infection, but not becoming sick enough to need hospitalization. Now, here's something, in my words, odd. If they were only mildly exposed and the loss of grain matter was up to 2% and an overall loss of vo- brain volume for the mildly sick. What is the degree of damage for those who had full-blown hospitalized symptoms of COVID? The study's lead author, Gwenel Daoud who's a professor in the the Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Oxford, said that although the number of hospitalized patients in the study, of which there were only 15, was too small to yield conclusive data, results suggested that their brain accuracy was worse than the mildly affected patients. People who had COVID also showed greater decline than uninfected people on a cognitive test related to attention and efficiency in performing a complex task. But outside experts and Dr. Daiwoo noted that the cognitive testing was rudimentary, so the study is very limited in what it can say about whether the gray matter or loss and tissue damage, the college patient's experience, affected their cognitive skills. Here's what we can say. When you begin to lose gray matter and your brain volume decreases, it affects your cognitive ability. There's just no way around it. Call it what it is. If it's a Neo-Maxi Zendwebe, then it is a Neo-Maxi Zendwebe. There's no way to change that. They are saying that none of them got through enough cognitive testing to know if they had significant deficits in, in, in any region of the brain, where they found these changes in volume. According to Dr. Benedict Michael, who's an associate professor of neurological infections at the University of Liverpool, he is also researching the neuropsychiatric effects of covid and was not involved in that particular study. He says, we don't know what it actually means or whether it actually means anything for the patient's quality of life or function. For example, although some of the largest gray matter loss was in areas related to smell, including, and listen to these words correctly, including the orbital frontal cortex and the parahippocampal gyrus. Note the connectivity of the names. One area is associated specifically with the frontal cortex. The other is closely associated with the hippocampus. We already know that there is a deterioration in size of the hippocampus when you're exposed to trauma. It shrinks. Particularly in areas of cognitive ability, there's a decrease. We know in our prefrontal cortex, there's a certain loss of certain abilities because of the constant stress that the trauma causes. Add to this the cause of infection from disease known as COVID-19, loss of material in these areas of the brain begin to affect the ability to cognitively react or respond properly, multiplied by a multiplier called chronic trauma. The main cognitive assessment where COVID patients showed a deficit was the trial-making, what they called the trial-making test. It's a connect-the-dots type of exercise involving alternating letters and numbers. COVID patients took longer to complete the task, which might suggest that there's a weakness in focus, processing speed, and other skill sets. Dr. Dawood said his diminished ability correlated, or rather this diminished ability correlated with the loss of gray matter in a specific region of the brain's cerebellum. But the study doesn't prove cause and effect, according to Dr. Sputage, who also said that the cerebellum, primarily associated with balance, coordination and movement, is not the brain's or the first brain structure you think of to explain changes in ability on a trial-making test. One significant study, according to Dr. Dawood, said that the researchers did not have information about people's symptoms, including whether they lost their sense of smell. Researchers also could not identify whether any patient had long COVID So, it's unclear if the findings relate to long-term conditions. Be aware now. Smell can elicit a flight or fight response. If it don't smell right, can cause you to exhibit apprehension. It will cause you to begin to process other sensory information from what you see and what you hear because there's a certain smell in the air. We know that chronic trauma causes problems with these things. Loss of that sense of smell now exposes you to a sensation in your environment that you are now no longer aware of. So if you're suffering via chronic trauma, you're now exposed. You're open. These create other stressors and fears. Dr. Michael, in reviewing the data, cautioned that the findings could not be extrapolated to many younger people experiencing post-COVID brain fog and other cognitive issues. And since gray matter and tissue damage were measured at only one point during, or rather I should say after the infection, he says and I quote, We don't know if it's just a transient change that gets better with recovery. Outside experts and the study's authors said the range of brain areas where COVID patients experience more gray matter loss raised intriguing questions after they reviewed the data. To quote Dr. Dawood again, There's no one part of the brain that does one thing. There are parts of the brain in the infected participants with additional gray matter loss that have nothing to do with smell and ones that are related to smell, which are also involved in other brain functions. The causes of the brain changes is unclear. The authors of the article mentioned theories including inflammation, evidence of which has been found in other studies, and sensory deprivation from the disrupted sense of smell. Dr. Avidra Nath, who is the chief of the section on infections of the nervous system at the National Institute, of neurological disorders and stroke says who was not involved in the study said another critical question was whether the brain changes could make COVID patients more prone to dementia. Other deficits in the future. Now we have said many times here are Not So mad Science heeding the warnings of God's man here on earth now that we see and know. The Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, protect yourselves from COVID. Do not take that damnable virus, that damnable vaccine. This virus is a pestilence from heaven. The effects of the vaccine which in the short run has proven to be marginally effective at best. There are long-term complications that nobody knows because you came up with a vaccine in six months to a disease that you cannot stop. And while the researchers did not find the same brain changes in patients with non-COVID pneumonia, Dr. Nath recommended studying patients with other coronaviruses or a flu to see if these findings are distinct for COVID-19 or more generalized or generalizable. Dr. Spudich said the study's greatest value may be in its indication that there's been something that's happened in the brain in these people. Adding that, she says, I think people have felt is so vague and so hard to measure. Other scientists can now build on these findings, she said, and do more detailed research. She said, and I quote, as I close out on this particular portion, as I give evidence of some of the lies shared with regards to COVID-19 and the data. It's an important study. They've done good work, according to Dr. Michael, adding now we need to do the studies to look at the conditions and the psychiatric symptoms and the behavioral stuff and the neurological stuff and find out what does this mean for patients and the world body at large. We're talking about the psychology of war and the effects of the trauma. It's relationship to COVID nineteen. This is not so mad science and I'm your host for the Harold Muhammad here on the Black Hole Radio Network. I'm going to ask that you give me Oh, let's say... Oh, ho, ho. We are not going to make the uh, mistake that we made last week and throw a brick through the glass. We are going to find something in someone. That is more consistent with what not so mad science represents. We're gonna go with a little D-train and we'll be right back.
0: This is a DJ skating, DJ
1: Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. This is Not So Mad Science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad here on the Black Hole Radio Network. Continuing this process through and providing evidence, research from other persons so that it's not what Harold Muhammad says or what... Brother Harold Muhammad can provide evidence for, to, and about. To give some documented support to our assertion with regards to information about COVID-19 and its impact on the brain, the psychology of the war. And this war that is being fought, the psychology of war, because we are at war. We, not, we do not war against individuals, but principalities and hidden hands in high places. Now, having quoted, quoted the scripture precisely, but that's the general synopsis of it. There's a war going on. There's a psychology of war. There's a traumatic effect of chronic trauma from our daily lives to what is caused by this war. There are victims who suffer as a result of this war who don't even know that they're victims of a war. So, Dr. Merrill Nas penned an article in the the Children's Health Defense Newsletter. And after reading it, I came to this conclusion. How do we get information about the vaccines that are being promoted that people are being told to take? You get it from doctors. You get it from friends. You get it from massive media campaigns where you hear People like Dr. Anthony Fauci of the NAIA, the presidents, uh, two presidents, I should say, Code 45, Mr. Trump, and Mr. 46, who can't seem to keep the beat, uh, Joe Biden. He's their number one guy for covid or Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Talk about them. Huge media campaign. We see all these advertisements for the COVID-19 vaccines. You see COVID vaccines in the news day in and day out. On the other hand, there exists this official legal document that lay out precisely what the evidence showed when decisions were made to issue an emergency use authorization, an EAU, for the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and a license for Pfizer's camaraderie vaccine. These documents tell us what information Pfizer and the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, are willing to stand by. These documents also establish the legal requirements for issuing the EUA and license for Pfizer's vaccine. But it may come as a shock. But well, what the FDA said when it issued both the EUA and the license for the Pfizer vaccines was very different from what you heard from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, via the media and other sources. There's what they say and there's what they show. For example, the CDC strongly encouraged the vaccine during pregnancy as late as December 2021. The FDA and Pfizer claim the information available was inadequate to determine the risk in pregnancy. So here's the precise language on the Comirnaty label: "Quote: Available data on the Comirnaty administered to pregnant women are insufficient." to inform vaccine-associated risk in pregnancy. That's a pretty clear we don't know, isn't it? Yet, here is CDC director, doctor, in front of her name, doctor, Rochelle Walensky, reassuring or assuring us the vaccine poses no health risk with regards to pregnancy or fertility. Five months later, in October 2021, her message is the same. In August 2021, when the Comeranati license was issued, Dr. Fauci the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, confirmed vaccine, or I should say confirmed vaccination in pregnancy is safe. Here are the talking points provided by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to obstetricians and gynecologists on how to convince women to be vaccinated even during the earliest stages of pregnancy when risk from most drugs and vaccines are the highest. One of the ACOG's key recommendations is, quote, vaccination may occur in any trimester. and emphasis should be on vaccine receipt As soon as possible to maximize maternal and fetal health. End quote. Yet, the CDC, in its own January 7th Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, stated there was insufficient data to make any determination of COVID vaccine safety in the first trimester. For while the federal agencies had no reason to believe the vaccine was safe in pregnancy and made sure their legal documents said so, they nonetheless advertised the vaccine as safe for pregnant women. The ACOG, which is a nonprofit professional organization for obstetricians, not only provided their members with false information on vaccine safety, but furthermore instructed them on the use of propaganda to convince the expected mothers to take the shot. The CDC guidance contradicts the Cameron label. The CDC guidance in some CDC guidance in some instances is inconsistent with statements on the label or package insert for the Pfizer's Comirnaty vaccine. The label, a legal document, was last updated on December 20th, 2021. Here are three examples of the inconsistency. The CDC made the false claim on its website that anaphylactic reactions occur at approximately the same rate after COVID vaccines as after other vaccines. Now, CDC informs us that safeguards are in place in case you do develop anaphylaxis after a COVID shot. The Comirnaty label and CDC website make plain that administration of the vaccine is limited to only those facilities that are able to medically manage anaphylactic reactions. A March 2021 study led by Dr. Kimberly G. Blumenthal of the Massachusetts General Hospital, where Walensky was the chief of infectious diseases until January 2021 showed the rate of anaphylaxis among employees of Mass General Brigham after COVID infection using standard criteria was about 50 to 100 times higher than the rate claimed by the CDC which was equivalent to the rate calculated by the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System in which underreporting by a factor of 10 to 100 is believed to occur. Just how stupid do people have to call it? What is Just How stupid do people have to be? Stupid. The CDC suggests, or while they suggest, I should say, episodes of myocarditis are mild and resolved quickly. The commonality label plainly states, quote, information is not yet available at the potential long-term sequelae, S-E-Q-U-E-L-A-E, an after effect of a disease, condition, or injury, or secondary result. many people have died from myocarditis after taking the vaccine shot to say that it is mild and resolves quickly. That's the parents of all the young men that have died from myocarditis. Three. Vaccine makers, health authorities, and others claim the Comirnaty other COVID vaccines could not possibly cause or stimulate cancer or cause fertility problems. So what does the label say? Carmarinati has not been evaluated for the potential cause to carcinogenicity, genotoxicity, or impairment of male fertility. So the label says one thing, but the advertising says another. Around the time the FDA granted the EUA for the Pfizer vaccine, which was done at warp speed on December eleventh, twenty twenty-one, EUA review memorandum. Although people who had already had COVID were encouraged, and sometimes forced to be vaccinated, the memorandum states very clearly, and I quote, very few cases of confirmed COVID-19 occurred among the 3% of clinical trial participants who had evidence of prior infection. However, available data are insufficient to determine whether such individuals could benefit from vaccination." the FDA memorandum stated although the FDA on December 10th, 2020 gave Pfizer authorization of an EUA to vaccinate everyone age 16 and up the FDA's document the FDA's documents say it again the FDA's document their own documents points out only one confirmed COVID-19 case was reported in the 16 to 17-year-old age group. If only one case was reported, how do you base your information on only one case? In other words, there were no data to support the efficacy, since that was their word at the time, to support efficacy in this age group. No wonder four members of the FDA Advisory Committee voted no and one abstained from supporting the authorization. A mention that was left out to the general public that four people said no, and one abstained from giving an opinion one way or the other because then they become legally liable. That's five people. My suspicion that the authorization of the vaccine for 16 and 17 year olds was needed in order to put the covid 19 vaccine on the cdc's recommended childhood schedule despite lack of supporting data so the fda pushed it through and sure enough the cdc advisory committee on august 30th 2021 provided 13 voted 13 to 1 in favor of putting the vaccine on the childhood schedule. This will provide it a different form of liability protection and open the door to mandating the vaccine for school attendance. As the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said, you cannot fathom the mind of Satan. However, I just searched and I could not find evidence that the vaccine was subsequently added to the childhood schedule. Isn't that very interesting? Even though the specter of asymptomatic infection drove masks, social distancing, and school closures, working from home and etc., cetera, the FDA did not require Pfizer to test this vaccine to see if it prevented asymptomatic conditions. The FDA memorandum states, quote, data are limited to assess the effect of the vaccine against asymptomatic infections. Yet the entire point of vaccinating to achieve herd immunity allegedly was to prevent spread from person to person. How is it possible neither the FDA nor Pfizer sought out evidence that the vaccine prevented transmission? Interesting question, don't you think? The FDA states, and I quote, data are limited to assess the effects of the vaccine against transmission of the SARS-CoV-2 from individuals who are infected despite vaccination risk of vaccine-enhanced diseases remains unknown. The biggest concern of scientists everywhere, including Dr. Fauci, was the potential for the vaccine to cause antibody-dependent enhancement, which is now the case, such that you have to get a a booster on top of a booster, on top of a booster, on top of a booster, ad infinitum. a problem that had occurred occasionally with new vaccines and had occurred with a coronavirus vaccine prototype. However, Pfizer did not test this vaccine for the risk of vaccine-enhanced disease. The FDA memorandum stated, and I quote, available data do not indicate a risk of vaccine-enhanced disease and conversely suggest effectiveness against severe disease within the available follow-up period. However, risk of vaccine-enhanced disease over time potentially associated with the waning immunity remains unknown and needs to be evaluated further in ongoing clinical trials and in observational studies could be conducted following authorization and or licensure. So pay close attention to the language. First, the FDA notes that the risk of vaccines causing worse disease needs to be evaluated further. Need, N-E-E-D-S, means it is necessary. But <laughs> just one line farther down, the FDA studies to do so could be conducted later, letting Pfizer and its off the hook itself off the hook for conducting any of these needed trials and studies. Remember now the law was changed so that not the government nor any of these other the government meaning its institutions, nor any of these pharmaceutical companies Pfizer Johnson and Johnson. Moderna, and others, could not be held legally accountable. The bottom line is that the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, or the NIH have not been working to protect the public during the COVID pandemic, but instead to protect themselves in the case of the FDA and to broadcast false information to the public regarding vaccine safety in the case of the NIH and CDC. Now, the question that needs to be asked is, do these lies rise to the level of fraud? I leave it to you to answer your own question, because this is not so mad science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad here on the Black Hole Radio Network. And to all who take opportunity to listen to this program later, please write your comments or your thoughts about tonight's content on our Facebook page for Black Hole Radio and give me some feedback. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know what you feel. Let me know what you're wondering. Give me your questions about tonight's content content more than any other because we are at war. Thus, There's a psychology to this war. And come on! To the mic. Well, he has the honor and privilege of closing out this edition of Not So Mad Science here on the Black Hole Radio Network with your host, Brother Harold Mohammed. So, oh. Super Lukey, the mic is yours. Okay.
0: Thank you for listening to Not So Mad Scientist.
1: With your host.
0: With your host.
1: Brother Harold Muhammad.
0: Brother Howard Muhammad.
1: Brother Harold Muhammad and, and. And. Myself. Myself. Luke Ma Muhammad. Luke Ma Muhammad. Keep the faith, baby. Keep the faith, baby. Keep the face. Good night. Good night, all. <laughs> mm, funny. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?